Well, from the dawn of humankind, men and women have been rebelling against the authority of God in this world and in their own lives. And I'm sure that is a great surprise to no one, especially if you've grown up in church or spent any time in the scriptures because sin of all varieties is an affront to God and his design for this world and for our lives. What might be less obvious, however, is the fact that not all sin is the same, contrary to what some want us to believe, especially when it comes to, uh, especially when it comes to usurping uh, the authority or attempting to usurp or undermine the authority of Christ. It's popular today to say sin is sin. And it is true, of course, that all sin does separate us from God. But what does the Bible actually say about different types of sin? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, God applied vastly different penalties to different sins. And likewise, in the New Testament, writers had much to say about the effects of different uh, kinds of sin. The Apostle John said, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul said, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5, 8. Speaking of those who turn from the faith, the Apostle Peter said, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Second Peter 2, 20 and 21. And then in Luke 12, 47 and 48, uh, speaking a parable about the final judgment, Jesus himself said, the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. <laughs> Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Uh, and then in uh, John 19, 10 and 11, we see uh, Jesus touch on this idea again that the one who actually has a knowledge of God and yet tries to assume authority over Christ in his life is actually guilty of, guilty of a greater sin and therefore greater consequences than the one who has no uh, knowledge of God. He's talking to Pilate here, a Roman governor, a Gentile with no knowledge of God's word. He's talking to him about Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest who has an extensive knowledge of God's word, who turned Jesus over to Pilate. And so in this passage, Pilate is questioning Jesus and he says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. John 19, 10 and 11. Caiaphas delivered Jesus over to Pilate. He had committed the greater sin because even though he had an extensive 
knowledge of God and his word. He was the high priest. He still usurped. He, he undermined the authority of God concerning the Messiah. And so the point of all of this is this. Not only are there varying degrees of sin, but perhaps one of the worst offenses against God that we can commit, and I would argue one of the most common, is when those who have a knowledge of God and His Word attempt to assume authority over areas of their own lives that belong to God alone. Okay? When God created mankind, Genesis chapter 1 says that He gave them dominion, authority, over his creation save one part. Where in chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 God said to the man you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And what did Adam and Eve do? Of course they rebelled against God's authority and attempted to take dominion over the one part of the garden that was not theirs to take. Even though they knew God and his word. Where did they learn to do that? From the one who was the first to rebel against God's authority in the heavens. Of course, the devil himself, the one who knew God intimately, but rebelled against his authority nonetheless and tried to take dominion over something that was not his to take. And yet having said that, it is really of ultimate importance that we recognize here that the devil did not force Adam and Eve to rebel against God. He tempted them, but it was their decision alone to do what they did, okay? The old, the old saying, the devil made me do it. That's probably the greatest cop-out of all time because the devil can't make us do anything. In fact, not only can we not be forced to sin, but God promises us that he will never put us in a position where our only option is to sin. That's actually what uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is talking about. It's probably one of the most commonly misapplied scriptures in all of the Bible where Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right? That is not saying that God will never give you more hardship than you can handle emotionally. That's how people use it all the time, but that's not what he's saying here. Besides which, uh, you can ask anyone who's ever lost a child or a spouse, and they will tell you that's not true. No, what Paul is saying in this verse is that God will never allow you to be in a position where you are so tempted to sin that you have no choice but to sin. He says, no, there is always a righteous response available to you in every situation that you face in this life without having to sin, which also means that when those of us who know God rebel against his authority in our lives, we alone are ultimately responsible. In fact, do you know that the greatest obstacle to following Jesus Christ that you will ever face in your life is you. It's not the devil. It's not his temptation. It's not the people who don't like you in this world. It's not false religions or government 
policies or anti-Christian culture. No, the greatest obstacle that you will ever have to overcome in order to follow Jesus Christ is yourself. Which is precisely why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Jesus said, take up your cross. That means die to yourself and follow me. He didn't say die to politics and follow me. He didn't say die to secular culture and follow me. No, he didn't say die to the devil and follow me. Jesus said die to yourself and come follow me. With everything going on in this world, why would Jesus put the focus back on ourselves when calling people to follow him? It's because he knows that our greatest obstacle to following him will always be ourselves. Why? Because we have a natural bent to usurp his authority in our lives by putting ourselves before him. It is an offense against God of the highest magnitude, and yet I would say probably one of the most common. Now, hear me. The work of Christ on the cross is a completed work. So that our sin, for those of us who've been saved by his grace through our faith, our sin has been atoned for. But that doesn't mean we no longer sin. And it doesn't mean there are no consequences for that sin. We may all well be members of the family of God, but our sin still affects us. It still takes a toll. It still has bearing on our future, and it keeps us from becoming all that he created us to be. You see, sin keeps you from realizing your potential. God has infused in each one of us, in our lives, a certain uh, capacity, and then he gives us the gifts and talents and abilities necessary to be able to live the life that you were created to live to the fullness of that capacity, which is a life full of purpose and great meaning. It is a life of tremendous potential, and yet every time we assert our will over his, every time we try to take dominion over something that is not ours to take, we miss out on the fullness of life that could have been ours had we simply submitted to his authority in every area of our lives. Just ask Adam and Eve, right? Better yet, ask Reuben and Simeon and Levi, just some of the characters in our story today who experienced firsthand the loss of abundance of life that could have been theirs had they simply submitted themselves to the authority in their lives. And I'm telling you, this is a lesson that has the potential to be profoundly formative for us. Because if we can learn to acknowledge those areas of our lives where we may be usurping his authority and begin to actually submit ourselves to him in those places, in those parts of our lives where maybe we've put ourselves before him, 
I'm telling you that has the potential to completely revolutionize your entire life because you will begin to realize exactly who he created you to be and how he is intended to use you in this life probably in greater ways than you've ever imagined on your own. That's exactly what happened to me and my family in our own lives. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can take his word for it too. So we're going to pick up the story where we left off last time a couple of weeks ago at Genesis chapter 49 as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph and his family. In this portion of the story, Jacob, the patriarch of this great family who is dying, he calls together his sons to pronounce the final blessing over their lives and those of their descendants. And this wasn't uh, merely ceremonial or sentimental, right? Because the blessings of a father in ancient Hebrew culture, particularly when it came to the patriarchs, carried not only tremendous authority and power, in fact, uh, they were prophetic in nature, but once uttered, uh, these blessings were essentially irrevocable decrees for whom uh, they were being spoken. And as we'll see, the degree to which the different sons submitted to their father's authority throughout their lives profoundly affects the degree to which their potential was realized in their lives, even in the lives of their descendants to come. So let's read it together at chapter 49. We'll start with the first two verses. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So Jacob calls his sons together one final time and he makes it clear in the words that he uses that what he's about to tell them is not merely what he thinks might happen to each one of them in their future, but is in fact a revelation from God of what will be realized in each of their lives with certainty. He says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. That, that phrase, in the days to come, in the ancient Hebrew, it only appears in Scripture in a prophetic context. It always refers to events far-reaching into the future. So everyone would have understood here the gravity of what was about to happen, the authority that Jacob's words carried. And as a result, Jacob had their undivided Attention! It's evidenced by the fact that for the next 27 straight verses, there is no dialogue. Even the words spoken over some of the sons, which were highly unfavorable, not one word is spoken in response or even in protest. They simply and reverently listen to their father's pronouncements over them as he speaks to each son about what will and what will not be realized in their lives as a result of the choices they have made. Let's keep reading verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Talk about a letdown. <laughs> Jacob starts off with, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength. 
preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. At this point, can't you just imagine Reuben looking around the room, nodding with pride to all of his brothers? He has to be feeling pretty good about himself at this point. He's the oldest. And as the firstborn son, he was not simply the pride and joy of his father, but in biblical times, the firstborn son had a special status. He had legal privileges that the others didn't have. Deuteronomy 21, the firstborn son is said to receive twice as large a share of his father's estate than any other brother's. And obviously Reuben understood that, which is what makes the second half of this pronouncement all the more painful. As Jacob continues, unstable is water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Uh, back in chapter 35, we learned that Reuben had sexual relations with Billah, one of uh, Jacob's wives, happened to also be the mother of his brothers Dan and Naphtali, which sounds bad enough in and of itself. And of course, that is a horrible sexual sin. And yet in chapter 38, we find Judah committing a terrible sexual sin with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But as we'll see, Judah re uh, receives no such rebuke as Reuben does here. Why? Because it's not simply the wicked nature of sexual sin that causes Reuben to lose his favored status. It is rather the fact that by sleeping with his father's wife, Reuben was attempting to usurp his father's authority over the tribe. You see, Reuben was trying to take dominion over something that was not his to take. Your potential can only be realized when under authority. There's no reality where your fullest potential in this life is realized while you're living outside of the authority that God has placed in your life. And by the way, every single one of us has God-given authority in our lives. There are certain institutions like marriage, certain leadership roles over us like our parents, certain civil authorities like the government, even spiritual leadership in our lives like the church, all of which God has instituted for us to honor and respect and obey. But when we violate those institutions, what we're doing is trying to take dominion over an area of our lives that is not ours to take. Right? God created marriage. We do not have the authority to destroy it. God created the hierarchy in our families. We do not have the authority to violate it. God created government. We do not have the authority to overthrow it. And God created his church. We do not have the authority to undermine it. And yet there are Christians, people who know God's word concerning these institutions, who war against their spouses, who disobey their families, who spew disrespect and near hatred toward the government and treat the church as if it's lucky when they decide to show up. And then they come to me and wonder why they're not receiving the blessings in their lives that they've been praying for. 
I'm just telling you, God does not honor unfaithfulness. He does not affirm disrespect. He does not bless rebellion. And he does not reward arrogance. And yet as much as it hurts others when we try to take dominion over these areas of our own lives that we have no authority over, it takes its heaviest toll on ourselves and sometimes our families for generations, just as we see with Reuben in our story. There's this prevailing attitude in much of Christendom today that is deeply disturbing. This idea that we can behave any way that we want to and treat others any way that we choose to and decide for ourselves which authorities God has placed in our lives that we will or will not obey. And regardless of how we behave or treat others or honor or dishonor these institutions in our lives, there is this attitude that somehow God will still heap blessing upon blessing in our lives nonstop because we walked an aisle at some point in our lives and prayed a sinner's prayer. And I'm just telling you, I think some of us are in for a very rude awakening when we stand before Christ and find out everything that our lives could have been. Everything that we forfeited because we tried to usurp, to rebel against God's authority in our lives by way of these institutions, which to be clear is his authority in our lives. If you want your life to be all that it can be, then bless your spouse, honor your family, respect your government, and be faithful to the church, and God will bless you. Your life won't be perfect, but God will bless you. By the way, Reuben was still Jacob's son after all of that. He still received an inheritance. You follow me? But his potential was never realized. His preeminence was never recognized and his power was never exercised because he tried to take dominion over the authority that God had placed in his life when it was not his to take. If you study scripture, you'll find that the tribe of Reuben never did excel. There was never a prophet, a judge, or a king that came from the tribe of Reuben. It was wasted potential. He was still his father's son. He still received his inheritance. You understand, but so much of his potential in this life was wasted. Let's keep reading. Verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So yet again, another harsh pronouncement, this time over the second and third board sons, Simeon and Levi, who share the same fate for their collusion in acting against their father's will. Back in uh, chapter 34, these two brothers killed all of the men of Shechem and plundered their land in retaliation for the rape of their sister Dinah, uh, which might have been justice if they'd only killed the offender, but they killed all of them. And they did that against their father's will. In verse 5, 
Jacob describes them as weapons of violence. And that particular word translated as violence there in the Hebrew is the word kamas, which refers not only uh, to violent behavior, but specifically to unjust, unrighteous violence. It says violence that is motivated by greed and hate and brutality. And then in verse 6, Jacob says, in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. To hamstring an ox meant that that animal would no longer be able to plow a field or carry water or do any meaningful work at all. So their unjust violence against these Canaanites was not only against the men whom they killed, but it threatened the very survival of the women and children as well because they could no longer use their animals for working the fields. Jacob is describing in these two brothers a wanton disregard for all of life, and even worse, a direct disobedience to his own authority as the head of the tribe. They were taking dominion over something that was not theirs to take. Okay, your potential can only be realized through obedience. I have yet to meet anyone who excelled in God's kingdom without obeying God's word. Obviously, there are people who excel in areas of life without obeying his word. There are plenty of wealthy, powerful, and influential people who wouldn't know God's word if it hit them in the face. But if you want to become the man or woman that God created you to be and fulfill your greatest potential in him, then you will have to obey his word. There's no way around it. And yet again, there are plenty of people today, I'm talking about believers, who have decided that God's word is subjective that it is intended to mean different things to different people so that when they read his word, they ask the question, well, what does this passage mean to me? Right? That's how we've ended up, by the way, with just about every kind of uh, sin and dysfunction in the church not only being treated as acceptable doctrine in some segments of the church today at least, but in some cases it is even being celebrated and ordained by the leadership of the church, which is easy to justify when we approach God's word by saying, what does this passage mean to me? I'm telling you that is a grievous mistake when it comes to rightly understanding God's word. When we read the Bible, instead of asking, what does this passage mean to me? We should be asking, what does this passage mean? God intended it to mean one thing. We have to understand what that is because God's truth is not subjective. It is objective. God doesn't change the meaning of Scripture according to our cultural sensibilities or personal preferences. Contrary to what many are claiming today, God's word is not meant to be shaped by our ever-changing culture. No, it is in fact the exact opposite. Our culture is meant to be shaped by God's unchanging word. Jesus said, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, John 18, 37. In other words, everyone who belongs to me obeys the authority of my word. A lot of folks, they see Jesus as this meek, gentle, 
soft-spoken, passive sage who never challenged people's strongest convictions as long as they meant well or were kind to others, right? As long as we show love, that's good enough. In fact, there are people who believe that's what Jesus was killed for because of the kindness that he showed to the Gentiles. I love how Randy Alcorn sums it up when he said, where Jesus as meek and mild and utterly tolerant as many think, he never would have been crucified. Jesus came with love and compassion and grace and mercy, absolutely. But he also fiercely defended the truth. And not subjective truth. He defended God's objective truth to the point that people were so infuriated with him that they murdered him for it. Why? Because he wasn't willing to compromise the truth. He was obedient even to the death, thereby fulfilling all that he was sent here to do. And so if we want to fulfill all that we were sent here to do, we must to be obedient to God's word. We must defend the truth, even when that infuriates others at times. And of course it will. Which, by the way, doesn't mean we won't fail in our own lives. We all do. We all fail. We all struggle. We don't, we don't always get it right. But obedience to his word means instead of trying to justify our mistakes or constantly blame someone else or take the position of the victim, we, no, we, we don't celebrate or make excuses for our failures. We own up to them. I have to do that all the time in my own life. We seek forgiveness. And then we continue on following Christ. We don't live perfect lives down here, but we can be forgiven, realizing our full potential in Him as we submit ourselves under the authority of Christ in obedience to His Word. And by the way, not only does our disobedience potentially affect our descendants for generations, but the opposite effect is also true. Our obedience affects our descendants for generations to come as well. In uh, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, God told Abraham, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, why in the world would you say that to Abraham? Because you have obeyed my voice. And so the choices that we make can have great bearing for the good or for the bad, not only on ourselves, but on those who come after us. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that Simeon or Levi ever sought to repair uh, the damage that they did by disobeying their father. And as a result, Simeon was integrated into the tribe of Judah, effectively uh, dissolving his own tribe. And Levi was never given a territory of his own. He was divided up among the remaining tribes. So just as with Reuben, the pronouncements of Jacob over Simeon and Levi come true and the lingering effects of their disobedience are felt for generations. Now we're going we're to continue this theme next week as we finish looking at Jacob's blessings over the other sons, which is a mixed bag, which I think accurately reflects the lives of uh, most of us, right? It's a mixture of good decisions and bad decisions throughout our lives. And so we'll see <clears throat> what we can learn from, from Judah and the other brothers next Sunday. For today, let's remember the struggles of Reuben and Simeon 
and Levi who chose to operate in disobedience and outside the authority that God placed in their lives, which can all be boiled down to a struggle with self, choosing the way of self over the way of Christ. It's the greatest obstacle you'll ever face in this life to following him, which is why the very first challenge that Jesus always presented to those who would desire to follow him was die to yourselves and then follow me, right? Because he knew that our greatest obstacle to following him would always be ourselves, usurping his authority in our lives by putting ourselves before him. That's what disobedience is. It's choosing ourselves over Christ, That's what rejecting authority is. It's choosing ourselves over Christ. And yet as long as we put ourselves first, we will never be able to fully realize all the potential that he has imprinted on our lives when we were created, you see. We think we're we're looking out for number one. We think we're... We're doing what's best for ourselves when we reject certain authority in our lives, right? He's not going to tell me what to do. I'm not listening to her. Sounds like freedom to blow off the God-given authority in our lives, but in truth, it's nothing more than pride. And pride never serves our best interest. Never. All that pride ever accomplishes in our lives is to stunt our spiritual growth and kill our potential to be all that he's created us to be because pride keeps our focus squarely on ourselves instead of on Christ, which always leads to disobedience. Disobedience says, I am going to do this my way because I know what is best for me exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, look guys, there are a lot of things in this world that will confront you and challenge your decision to follow me. But by far and away, the greatest of those struggles that you will ever face in this life will be yourself. So anyone who would come after me will first have to deny himself, take up his cross. That means die to yourself, and then you can follow me which is not only the greatest struggle you will ever face, but it is decidedly the most difficult to overcome. John Walton once wrote, the separation from self and sin cannot be painless. The surgeon must cut to heal, and the builder must demolish to rebuild. The Apostle Paul, after describing his life's work before his conversion to Christ, after describing in Philippians 3 all that he had become, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, no matter what any of you can claim about yourselves, I can claim more because I have attained personal greatness in my lifetime. In fact, most people in Paul's day would have said that he had already uh, at that point realized his fullest potential in life. 
And yet in response to all of that personal greatness, Paul says of himself, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, don't miss the fact that not only did Paul say that all those things in his life were rubbish compared to Christ, but he also said, I have suffered the loss of all those things. I've suffered. In other words, I had to die to myself so that I could follow Christ. It's quite clear that dying to ourselves is not only the greatest struggle you will ever face, but decidedly the most difficult to overcome. Paul describes it as a suffering. Why? Because denying ourselves, to be honest, is a death. Being obedient and submitting to authority can at times be the hardest thing you'll ever do, but that is a part of what it means to die to ourselves. And the result, as painful as the process can be at times, the result which we're going to talk about next week, when we die to ourselves for the sake of Christ, submitting our lives fully to Him, the result, I'm telling you, is nothing short of miraculous. Your life becomes something you never imagined it could be. But to get there, you cannot bypass the part where you give up your own life, your own will, the greatest obstacle you will ever face to following Jesus. You cannot skip that part because as Jesus said, that is what you must do if you're going to realize your potential in this life. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have designed and created us for a life that is full of purpose and meaning. We're also grateful that when you formed us, you infused all of these gifts and uh, talents and abilities that are needed for us to realize all that potential that we were created for. So that what is actually needed in order for us to become all that we could become is not more from you. It's actually less of us. We have to decrease that you would increase in our lives. We don't want to miss out on anything that you've provided for, that you created us for, that, uh, that you've intended for us. We don't want to waste any potential in our lives. So no matter what we've accomplished on our own, no matter what we've amassed apart from you, no matter what we've achieved by our own merit, May we, along with the Apostle Paul, count it all as rubbish, even if it means suffering the loss of all those things, that we might gain Christ, realizing the fullness of a life spent following Him. So help us, Father, to die to ourselves and to truly follow You. Even now, as we give You all the praise and honor and glory, that belong to you alone, even now as we pray in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love you very much.
I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be back here. It feels like I've been gone a month. Uh, I got to preach and lead worship, which is like breathing pure oxygen for me up in Alaska, but, but it's not the same as being here with you. This is my church family, and uh, you are our heartbeat. I hope you know that. Mary Beth and I pray for you every single day. I've been praying for you all morning today. I love you so much, and I'm praying that you have an amazing week, that God's potential and blessings may be realized in your life as you submit yourself to him. I know that he will, and I believe that you will too. God is with you, and so are we. I love you so much. I'll see you next Sunday. You're dismissed.